Welcome now to Access Utah. Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2015 isn't a word at all. It's an emoji, one of those little faces you see all over on social media. And I'm hearing extreme glottal stops. I heard this on Sports Illustrated uh, website, as in the new football coach at USC is Clay Helton. And strength, pronounced as strength. It's enough to drive a language purist to distraction. This morning on the program, we're going to ask, where is language going and how can we stop it from going there? Now, after I wrote that, I put a little emoticon there, but you you know, you know, can't see that. We'll talk about that. We'll entertain your language complaints. We'll uh, talk with uh, Simon Horvin, who is Professor of English Language and Literature, University of Oxford in England. He's the author of a recent article on theconversation.com titled, What Will the English Language Be Like in 100 Years? And uh, Professor Horvin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. I'd like to uh, to talk about, uh, you could call them prescriptionists, uh, you know, language purists. I put myself a bit in that camp. Um, I was raised by a father who was who studied English in uh, in college. Uh, so I tend to, in a curmudgeonly way, uh, rail against every new thing, like this new thing, this, uh, you know, Clay Halton, which I've associated with junior high girls before, and now it's becoming mainstream. But uh, as I was reading your article, it, it you know, it, it, it seems foolish to try to put your finger in the in the dike, so to speak. I wonder if we could start with, I didn't know about this until I read your article. In Singapore, there's a speak good English movement. They're trying to prescribe. Yeah. They're trying to prescribe what kind of English is spoken. That's absolutely right. And it goes back to um, the issue of the prestige of um, standard British English, which, of course, was introduced in Singapore as in many parts of Southeast Asia and across the globe with the British Empire. And for a long time, standard British English has held that prestige. But increasingly, uh, in Singapore and in many other parts of the world, new forms of English are emerging, particularly in the spoken language, in which, in, in the case of Singapore, English is being mixed with the native languages, so Chinese and Malay, and forming different pronunciations and different grammar, different vocabulary. Um, and that's the, the variety that you hear more commonly um, in, in households, on the street corners. That's what people speak to each other in Singapore. But the government still feels very strongly that people should preserve the standard British English associated with the empire. It's, it still maintains that kind of what we call overt prestige. It's considered to be a higher status variety, and therefore they're insisting and trying to legislate upon the use of English, standard British English, in education, through in, in schools, and um, through the media, um, on the television, in the news bulletins. And so there's this promotion of standard British English using this Speak Good English movement. And I'm at their website. I've linked over from the article on theconversation.com. Uh, goodenglish.org.sg, uh, the, 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 the masthead says, grammar rules matter. And uh, you can take a test, how good is your English? And then they have uh, you know, some, some suggestions. And I was thinking, if this kind of thing is going to work anywhere, it, you know, it, it's, it's going to have to be a society like Singapore, right, with a pretty strong government fairly small and compact, well, relatively small and compact, um, you know, society and culture. But, but I also doubt that this is going to work. What, what do you think? 
I think you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly you need that kind of very strong centralized, um, in very sort of um, institutionalized um, country in which you, you can promote these kinds of rules. But language tends not to obey them. And people, speakers who are the users of language, tend not to obey them unless, um, it, you know, you're thinking about the education system where you can... Um, where you can um, test it and require it for passing exams and so on. Um, generally, the most language, of course, is, is spoken rather than written and is used uh, by people in, in how they want to speak. Um, the history of English has seen many attempts in Britain and elsewhere to set up academies, um, which is of a similar kind to this, in which there have been attempts to try and regulate usage. We have them, of course, in, in places like France still today, and, um, and even in France, where uh, the academy exists and these rules are being formulated um, and insisted upon, people tend not to pay attention to them. So there's often a, a big gap between what what the legislators um, say and what people actually do, what usage is actually like. Yeah, I was going to bring up the French Academy. Uh, so I don't know if this is true. You can do they have any teeth at all? Can they fine you for using you know the wrong word? No, they don't. Okay. So they're, they're simply they they make their judgments and people can pay attention to them or not. Um, and in most cases, it's, it, it, it has very little impact. In, you know, a, an example might be the way in which um, Anglicisms tend to be um, frowned upon by the French Academy. So that's the, the borrowing of English words, particularly perhaps to do with the area of um, electronic technology, um, words like hashtag, um, <laughs> which, again, are felt to be you know, incorrect forms of French and, and yeah. Um, but people use them all the time, and um, as soon as the when you know, there was a there was a big um, furore over it um, a year or two ago, when the French Academy um, said that it should be la modiez, not the hashtag, um, and people took to Twitter to to complain about this using the hashtag <laughs> fighting a losing battle, um, and clearly there was a feeling that you know especially in the electronic domain that actually we don't want authority trying to pronounce on how we should use language, and in fact we tend to to, re, to react against it. My impression, perhaps totally uninformed, is that uh, the impulse with the French language is perhaps losing some prestige of having been the lingua franca, and, and the, the losing that, so and English taking over as lingua franca. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, the, and yeah, but the... the English has a particular kind of status because, you know, historically, um, but also in the sense that, you know, it's so much more used around the world today and therefore there, there tends to be this, um, and, and it's, it, it, I suppose it's one of the dominant languages of the internet and of the electronic age and therefore it's, it's not surprising that French has to sort of adopt English words to express these kinds of um, new uh, technologies. And so, yeah, the dominance of English as a world language in a way that French, you know, has had more status than it has today um, is quite different. And a lot of this, uh, as Singapore has keyed in on, it has to do with prestige, doesn't it? It's, it's certain kinds of, of at least spoken English carry for a lot of people different uh, weights of prestige. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I suppose 
you're referring perhaps there principally to accent, um, maybe. Um, And so when we're thinking about spoken language, of course, we've got a standard language which can relate to the written language as well as to the spoken language. But a feature of the spoken language that still uh, is, is the is one of the areas that people often judge, you know, accents as being better or worse, comes down to this question of, um, of what's known as received pronunciation, which is a, a form of spoken English um, which was first identified and labelled in the late 19th century. And since then, um, well, throughout much of the 20th century, was the prestigious form of spoken British English, certainly. Um, and, of course, that, that's the variety that was introduced with the British Empire and still in many parts of the, the world today is perceived as being you know, the, the right way of speaking, the correct mm-hmm. way. Even in Britain today, there are only about 3 to 5% of speakers of English in Britain who use received pronunciation, but still within the BBC and the media and within many of the higher... Um, institutions in Britain, it's perceived as being the, the, the correct form of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who speak received pronunciation are often thought to have to not have an accent. Um, what actually what people mean by that is um, that it's it's a kind of default by which other accents are measured. Because of course everybody speaks with an accent, but because it's not geographically um, or regionally. Um, prescribed uh, people who speak RP learn it at school um, rather than uh, because they've grown up in a particular part of Britain. Um, Therefore, it's seen as being um, a sort of default by which other accents are measured. Mm. Uh, In fact, I have a friend who uh, moved from Utah, I believe, to to the eastern part of the United States, who, uh, I believe, consciously tried to change his accent because he he was being judged based on his Utah accent. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, that's still a phenomenon that is, is very alive today in Britain because there are some accents that are still perceived to be socially inferior, that they perceived um, to hold you back, that you can go to interviews and people will make judgments about you simply because you have an accent that comes from, say, Birmingham, which is the one that's often the city that's often associated with a particular kind of accent that seems to be socially undesirable. And therefore, people make judgments about your personality, your education, uh, although, of course, there isn't actually any necessary connection between the accent that you have and the education you have. And, uh, but these things are all kind of bound up with the notion of, of accent. Mm. Although today, um, emerging are uh, ideas that um, some regional accents, um, particularly ones associated with Irish English or Scottish English, can also have um, positive connotations. So often they're thought to, to be... The speakers are thought to be friendly and approachable, honest, in a way that sometimes RP speakers, um, and then if your listeners are wondering what the RP accent sounds like, it's pretty much what I'm speaking. I wonder. Uh, that okay. accent, it seemed right. to be a bit aloof and cold. Did, uh, did you learn the RP at school, or did you grow up with it, or what? Uh... Well, I went to one of the um, traditional English public boarding schools and mm-hmm. by public in in british usage that means a private right rather peculiarly that's a strange yeah, historical yeah. usage um but a boarding school and that's where the, the the rp accent actually really came from in the 19th and early 20th centuries because that's an accent is something you you derive you know you acquire while you're growing up generally 
Um, and the boarding schools were the places that people acquired these. So people would come from all over the country and then grow up in the same environment. And that's what kind of um, nurtured this RP accent. And that's why I've got it. And that's why, you know, most people today who speak with RP have probably been to that kind of boarding school, mm-hmm. which is why it has these certain kinds of class connotations. Yeah, and a small percentage of the the populace would, would speak RP, I guess. Uh, uh, We've been talking about accent, but it's also the use of the language, the the grammar. I'll give you an example. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Whenever our president, George W. Bush, would stand side by side with your prime minister, Tony Blair, and, and, and often they'd be saying the same things, the same sorts of themes. They were agreeing with each other. I would shake my head at President Bush. I would think uh, I I don't <laughs> I'm not not on board with what you're saying because you're not saying it very well. But I'd I'd listen to uh, Prime Minister Blair and I'd think that sounds very logical. It sounds great, and it and it was just, it was the accent and it was the the use of grammar. Uh, now President Bush admitted he by his own admission he would say he he's he's not the best speaker in English. Yeah, I wonder. There's an interesting question about to what ex- what the relationship between is um, between you know the kind of the, the way he's speaking, the accent that he's using, um, and um, the way in which he constructs his sentences. For instance, um, the way in which he sort of um, puts across an argument. I suppose those two things are separate. But I agree that, uh, and to some extent, I think George W. Bush. Um, um, cultivated um, the idea that, you know, his, his accent was of a particular type and, and it helped to associate himself with, um, uh, with a, a particular kind of group, um, maybe trying to sound more accessible, less um, elitist, less refined. I mean, I remember certainly that there's the whole debate that, over the question of his pronunciation of the word nuclear. <laughs> Rather than nuclear, I don't yes. know if that's something that that you were conscious of too. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's something that was reported in the in the British press, and again, that was a kind of that's one of those things that that particular pronunciation is seen as being particularly indicative of a lack of education. And, mm. and um, if you can't say the word nuclear properly, then how can you have a proper nuclear policy? Those kinds of associations. Whereas, in fact, of course, that is a, a, a genuine regional variant pronunciation in in US usage. And there be very real judgments made, you know, based on how you pronounce words. But uh, I think harsher sometimes than others. Another example, President Obama, and he will admit, he'll even say, I'm going on the campaign trail, so I'll be dropping my G's. You know, he'll, he'll, mm. he'll stop saying talking, and he'll say talking, and that he's trying to be more approachable, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. We see that in Britain, too. And there's a variety that's known um, particularly um, to be used by Conservative Party politicians, like President, uh, like our Prime Minister David Cameron, who went to um, Eton College, one of the top um, uh, public school boarding schools that we've been talking about, and so has the RP accent. But there's a tradition amongst that group of politicians of um, adopting what's known as Mockney, Mockney accent, because it's a form of the Cockney accent, which is. Um, a, a sort of regional uh, usage associated with London, a more um, traditionally a more working class, lower class accent. Um, and Mockney is a, is a sort of blend of the words mock and Cockney. And it, it's so called because it's, it, it basically is an RP speaker uh, dropping G's 
um, glottal stopping uh, bottle instead of bottle, um, and trying to make their accent sound like they are. You know, so when they say to the general public, we're all in this austerity together, it sounds like they might actually be in it together rather mm-hmm. than sounding you know, like a very refined and wealthy upper-class speaker. Now, the danger there is that you'll be seen as inauthentic, right? You've you got to do this carefully. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, and, you know, there are, there, are, there, there are plenty of ways in which, I mean, a classic marker um, in speech in Britain is whether you sound your H's at the beginning of words. So um, H dropping, um, saying, um, how are you, instead of how are you, is something that's been frowned upon since the 18th century and is very salient in Britain as a marker of so-called sloppy um, lower class speaking, partly because it is a feature of the Cockney accent, but it's not a feature of the RP accent. So for RP speakers, we tend to say, how are you? But in some cases, particularly when it's um, a pronoun, unstressed, in fast speech, you might well say, where's he gone? Instead of where's he gone? Just because it's not stressed, you're speaking quickly, and you're not being that careful to enunciate every sound. Whereas somebody who's being careful to adopt RP because they want to sound like they belong to that more prestigious class will often be more careful and say, where's he gone? And that kind of marker is an indication of a hypercorrection. Somebody who is, isn't authentically speaking RP but is trying to sound as if they do naturally. We're uh, talking with uh, Simon Horbin. He is a professor of English language and literature at University of Oxford in England. He's the author of a recent article at theconversation.com titled, What Will the English Language Be Like in 100 Years? We'll get into talking about that in our next segment. One thing Professor Horbin says uh, here that uh, I think will raise some eyebrows, he is saying that uh, Google Translate is here to stay and it'll become accepted. Um, it's interesting to, to speculate where English language will, will go in the next 100 years. We'll talk about that. I'm also entertaining your language complaints. I love to do this. I, I love to shake my fist at these, knowing that I can't do anything to, to stop where language is going. Um, but I have uh, it, <laughs> it brought me up short when I heard that on Sports Illustrated about Coach Helton. Um, so that's one of my complaints. Also, um, I hear pitcher, as in that's a pretty pitcher, um, which I associate with a you know baseball pitcher, but they're using it as a picture. And I make judgments, so you know maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, we'll also get to a complaint from Steve in Arizona, and you can reach us at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Strong leaders realize they don't know everything. They listen more than they speak. They invite ideas from everyone and facilitate communication between all. One plant manager works on the shop floor a couple of days a month in order to stay in touch with his employees. Another company president answers phone calls when customer volume goes up. Leading with humility means creating an environment where respect replaces fear, where all jobs are valued. One business owner decided to eliminate her reserved parking and moved her work desk into a cubicle with others. She said excellence is a team sport. 
The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2015 isn't a word at all. It's an emoji. One of those little faces that you see all over on social media. Uh, that, I'm sure, got some uh, pushback. We're talking about language complaints, but we're also looking ahead to what will the English language be like in 100 years. That's the title of an article uh, recently in theconversation.com by Simon Horbin, who is professor of English Language and Literature, University of Oxford. He's my guest for the hour today on the program. And uh, Professor Horbin, we do have this uh, by email from Steve. Uh, he says, my bet noir is how often the phrase to beg the question is misused to mean to raise the question. When it comes to this, NPR reporters are especially egregious repeat offenders. It is not prescriptivism, which underlies my irritation so much as it is the loss of subtle meaning, which uh, the language will never recover when, by Gresham's law, the bad usage completely drives the correct use out of existence. To beg the question properly means to make an unstated assumption. In other words, it means to conceal a question, which is quite the opposite of raising one. Thanks for that, Steve. We're entertaining your uh, language complaints at upraxis at gmail.com and uh, by toll-free number 1-800-826-1495. Professor Horman, what do you think of that? Well, he's, he's absolutely right, of course. That, that's precisely what it means. Um, and people are misusing it. Um, but, of course, that's how language changes. Um, and I know that might sound heretical to say that you know language changes because people get it wrong but that that essentially what happens is that as as the as that usage becomes more and more frequent as more and more people hear it used that way so that that becomes the dominant usage um you know a classic example of the same kind of thing that that is happening in the uk at the moment is the word literally um <laughs> which historically of course means something that is um that is literally true, um, whereas now it is much more commonly used to mean the opposite, something that is metaphorical, um, something that is not literally the case. These are uses like, um, I, uh, I was literally gutted when I heard the news, where what you mean, of course, is metaphorically gutted. You know, I literally exploded with rage. Um, and it's become a general intensifier. And people use it all the time now in that sense of extremely um, and it's the opposite of what it means. The word has changed its meaning to an extreme form. Um, and people rail against it and complain about it, but younger generations do it all the time. And I'm sure in about 50 years, people will have forgotten that and the battle will have been lost. There's a, uh, you're reminding me, there's a uh, uh, channel here in the, in the U.S. Uh, based out of uh, Provo here in, in Utah. It's uh, BYU-TV. And they have a sketch comedy show called Studio C. There's a uh, character on that show called Captain Literally. And so if you misuse, in his, his view, uh, literally, he will come and make it literal. That's kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. And these are young yeah, people doing way, yeah, it, yeah. so I'm, I'm glad to see some young people paying attention. And then they have, a, they have the nuclear ninja. If you mispronounce nuclear, he'll come and you know, punch you in the stomach. And <laughs> I'm glad to see young people uh, paying attention. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are very conscious of these things. But I mean, what happens, I think, with language change is quite often there are certain things that people get very exercised about and there's lots of publicity about. Other things tend to change under the wire. We talk about the difference between sort of conscious and subconscious language change or um, overt and covert. And, um, you know, so literally is one of those ones that's, that's regularly in the papers. Um, and, and what we often don't have is the kind of historical um, overview to see how the language has changed over time because, you know, there are many other words like really, which have done pretty much the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. really historically, of course, means actually properly true. Um, but now we can say I'm really burning with anger or whatever mm-hmm. to mean yeah. intensively so. Um, these changes are, are ones that we don't notice now because they happened, you know, at a time in the past. The example that you mentioned earlier about um, picture being pronounced as picture, um, the same thing happened with words like question, um, which, you know, Shakespeare would have said, to be or not to be, that is the question. Oh. Um, that word's changed to question, sh- similar kind of um, shift in pronunciation, but it happened hundreds of years ago. So sometimes these changes are kind of natural ones, effectively, because of the way that we pronounce words. Um, but they're just more salient to us when the changes are really actually in progress. We have a caller, a Jim in Cedar City. Jim, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your uh, question or comment. Uh, one of the problems I have, almost all my listening is to uh, NPR or UPR, is that there's a carelessness in pronunciation. <clears throat> almost everybody is saying fur when they mean for. Yeah, that's true. And I've even heard you use fur. Mm-hmm. I think earlier in this program, yeah, it, it, it registered with me earlier today. Go ahead. Saying your instead of your. And over the long term, there's been a mispronunciation of homogeneous, where I've heard people say homogenous. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, realtor for realtor. This, this goes along with that nuclear or nuclear bit. So it's just the carelessness in pronunciation that I find a bit disturbing. And that's, that's my comment. Okay, thank you, Jim. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yeah, Professor Harbin, I, I, I did find, since we're talking about language, I guess I'm monitoring myself more carefully, and I notice I have been saying fur, and I guess I do routinely. Uh, and that's judged, of course. Jim made a judgment on that. Um, homogenous, I say homogenous all the time. That one, I would, I would submit to Jim that that, that horse has maybe left the barn, but uh, we'll we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the same in in Britain too. One hears homogenous all the time, but correctly, it is homogeneous certainly. Um, and of course, it's partly about um, what we call analogy that people tend to. Um, uh, pronounce words by comparing them to other ones that they know that sound like it. Um, mm. And that's a more natural pattern for speakers to say homogenous rather than homogeneous. Um, and so, again, I think that that's one of those, um, those changes that, you know, if we think about words like dangerous and ludicrous, so homogenous seems to fit more neatly with that. Um, and therefore, I think, again, that, that that's a change. It's, a, it's slightly different one because it's probably a word that people didn't use as often yeah. so um 
Um, and so, the, you know, the, the changes sometimes, you know, people don't just generally don't know how to pronounce that word. Um, the question of what's the correct pronunciation of a word is an interesting one, though, isn't it? Like, why do we assume that there are right and wrong ways of pronouncing words? We all do it differently, and we all know that that pronunciation has changed over time. We're all aware that, you know, it would have sounded different when Shakespeare was around. Um, so why do we think that there's one right way and one wrong way? I mean, one way you might say is, well, you can look at the spelling. Um, and of course, homogeneous is spelt as, as I've just pronounced it. Although, of course, now people are changing the spelling of it to fit the pronunciation. Um, but that's, that's an interesting question. Should we pronounce words as they're spelt? Um, because, of course, they're, they're, again, spelling isn't an accurate guide to pronunciation. And in fact, it's actually a more accurate guide to the pronunciation of English of the 15th century, which is when spelling began to be fixed. So if you think about a word like night, K-N-I-G-H-T, it's because it's spelt that way because in the 15th century they said knicht. Um, and as pronunciation has changed, the spelling has remained fixed. Um, and so questions about correctness in pronunciation which often come down to this question of you know well if it's spelt um in that way then it, it should be pronounced in that way uh, again are, are slightly problematic and i think uh, jim's uh, jim is making um he has expectations which which actually complement npr and and upr which is he's expecting what he considers to be uh, you know the re- received pronunciation or the accurate pronunciation from an affiliate like national public radio or Utah Public Radio. So, in in that yeah, case, yeah, I think that's right. And for for a long time, see, in Britain, the BBC, of course, was the sort of um, was one of the ways in which received pronunciation re- retained its status because that's the variety that was spoken on the BBC. And in fact, RP is often known as BBC English. Um, and throughout the world, in fact, BBC English is seen as being this particular kind of pronunciation because they were seen to preserve standards and to broadcast those standards. And in fact, when the BBC was first set up in the early 20th century, uh, that was one of its mission statements, was to preserve and to broadcast good, correct English. Um, And so they had to then employ a a group of scholars who would advise them over the correct pronunciations of words, um, and they produced booklets and guides to presenters on doubtful words and how they should be pronounced. Um, but of course, over time, as the language changed, so they had to update those guides because they were just increasingly sounded more and more outdated. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that people look to um, national public radios stations and to broadcasters like yourself to, to set a standard, um, and they expect to hear that standard and to see it being promulgated in that way. Um, the BBC, um, it, it's only really relatively recently um, that they've allowed... Um, that they started to employ broadcasters with a wider range of accents. And even then, it tends to be you know, local radio stations um, or Scottish, uh, Welsh, Irish accents, rather than regional British ones, because they're still felt not to be appropriate to be heard on the BBC. Let's take another break. Um, and I promise when we come back for the last segment, we will get into the, the main focus of Professor Horvath's a very interesting article on theconversation.com. We will. He, he's taking past his prologue. He's he's trying to extrapolate from the past uh, of English, and and uh, he's using Latin and how that split into the Romance languages, and, uh, and is, he's speculating how where English will go. We'll talk about that following this break. 
Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Julie Taymor is a top theater and film director known for her interpretations of the classics. Next time on Q, I'll chat with Julie about her ambitious stage visions and why female filmmakers aren't bigger in Hollywood today. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is celebrating. We will welcome in the new year at the Logan Country Club, and we invite you to join the party. Fine dining services provided by Hamilton's, live music and dancing to the band Way Way East Bay. And we will toast in the new year twice, joining our friends from the East Coast and then welcoming 2016 as the clock strikes midnight here at home. Reservation information at upr.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about language. Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2015 isn't a word at all. It's an emoji. It's one of those little faces you see all over on social media. If you go to our website, you can see a, a picture of that, a photograph. I made sure to say picture, not picture. Um, and uh, you can join the conversation. We're asking for your language complaints, and we've uh, had a few. Thank you for those. Keep those coming. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 1-800-826-1495. I'll say it once again. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So I want to get right into, uh, Professor Horvin, uh, this, uh, the premise of your article. You say one way of predicting the future is to look at the past. And so the global role English plays today as a lingua franca, uses means of communication by speakers of different languages, has parallels in the Latin of pre-modern Europe. How so? Well, because um, what we see today is um, English being spoken um, in large parts of the globe. Um, and so the premise is that similar things happened um, after, um, during the period in which the Romans sort of conquered much of Europe and spread the Latin language as the spoken language um, as a kind of lingua franca. Um, and what that means is that where uh, they came into contact with other um, speakers who didn't, uh, where they didn't speak the, the native language, or where two groups of speakers with different native languages tried to communicate with each other, they used, lang- they used Latin. Um, and so Latin spread in that way um, and therefore continued to be spoken long after, after the fall of the Roman Empire. So it remained this language of uh, this spoken language by peoples, by areas of the country where, of, of Europe where the Romans had settled, but also to enable communication between um, groups of speakers whose native tongues were different. And we see that still today, of course, with English. It's often spoken you know, in parts of Europe, for instance, where, um, uh, where speakers of different languages um, from Scandinavia or from Italy, France, Holland will come together, and the language that they often have in common is English. Um, and of course, we can see that as we've been speaking about in, in Southeast Asia too. Um, so this spread of English mirrors the way in which it served as a lingua, uh, Latin served as a lingua franca long after the fall of the Roman Empire. But what, of course, happened then, in going back to the Roman times, is that it's Lat- classical Latin, um, which. Uh, was associated with the Romans principally, ceased to be um, a native language. 
So it was used only as a, lingu as a lingua franca by people who were learning it explicitly for this purpose of communication across language groups. Although it did continue to be used as a written language, um, and for a long time classical language, the classical Latin language, survived in writing. In fact, right through the early modern period in the Renaissance, people were still writing, you know, Erasmus and Thomas More and people were still writing in, in Latin. Um, but what, of course, happened in the areas where Latin had been a spoken native tongue is that it continued to change all the time, just as we've been saying as with English. We look back at the history of English, and we can see that Shakespeare's language is very different to our own. Of course, classical Latin that was used by Cicero um, it was very different to what was being spoken in parts of France and um, Spain um, in, in the sort of uh, towards the end of the um, first millennium. So the spoken language and the written language were, became very different. The classical language preserved in writing, but by the time um, the, these dialects that were being spoken began to be written down, they looked nothing like classical Latin. And in fact, what they were were completely new languages, and that's what gave rise to the languages that we know today as French, Spanish, Portuguese, and so on, the Romance languages, all derived from Latin, but developed in their own way. And that's what I'm suggesting is happening with English, is that in areas like Singapore, as we've been saying, where English is being mixed with other languages, Chinese and Malay, it's forming uh, very different types of English. Um, and as, you know, projecting into the future, those differences will become greater and greater. One of the examples from the, from the United States is, of course, um, what's known as Spanglish, uh, a mixed form of Spanish and um, English, which is being spoken by large numbers of people in big communities in parts of um, the United States. And as these forms of English become increasingly divergent from English, so that speakers of Spanglish and speakers of English no longer um, understand each other, we have to start thinking of them as new languages in their own right. Let's uh, go to another caller. This is Steve in uh, Beaverdam, Arizona. Steve, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you. Can you hear me, Tom? I can. Oh, good. Excellent. I, 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 um, the reason I'm calling is that I've had this as a hobby. I've been collecting words that sound alike and have similar meanings, and it occurs to me, and this is just a, you know, a, a peccadillo of my own, but it occurs to me that uh, over time that they're going to start to converge and that one word will, will drive out the other. I've got 30 of these. I've been advised that we're running out of time, so if you and you and the professor and your listeners will indulge, I'll read, I don't know, the first 10 or so. Okay. Uh, Boom, boon, class, hasp, careen, career, elegy, eulogy, explication, explanation, fail, flail, fest, feast, fletch, pardon me, flitch, fletch, founder, flounder, grill, griddle, home, hone, immunity, impunity, musky, musty, and so forth and so on. Um, the, the, my theory is uh, that they, they are so similar in, in their sound and in their meaning, these, these, these uh, word pairings, that... Uh, uh, perhaps with time, uh, one will prevail and the other one will disappear from the language. Interesting. Uh, by the way, Steve, would you email us the full list? We'll put it on our website if you're if you're sure, okay with that. Sure, you bet. I, yeah. I certainly will. Great. Thanks for that, Steve. Okay. Thank you, uh, uh, Professor Harbin. What do you think about that? Well, one of those that I could um, hone in on, or is that home in on, is exactly that example that we just heard, which is a classic one that you hear all the time. Is that speakers. Uh, some speakers will say, I want to hone in on that point, and others will say, home in on that point. And I think that he's absolutely right that those, uh, that those similarity in those pronunciations 
um, mean that quite often people don't know which is the right one. And of course, actually, you can make a case in terms of meaning for either of those, you know, to hone in on something. It's actually should be home in on it um, because it's it's from the the word home. But because honing is to do with sharpening like a blade, we think of that as somehow getting us closer to something. Um, It was getting sharper and sharper. And so we can we can sort of logically explain that one to ourselves as well. These are what are often known as folk etymologies, um, where we can make a kind of case for it. um, And therefore, if a word sounds similar um, and has a similar meaning, then often that's, that's exactly what happens. The meaning changes, and, and quite often one of those words might well fall out of the language, as he was suggesting. I want to talk about a couple, make sure we get in a couple of these uh, subtopics. One is Google Translate. What do you think the effect of Google Translate will be going forward? Well, I think this is, you know, relates to this um, point I've been making about the role of English as a lingua franca. Um, and obviously we're in changing times particularly. Language is changed by technology, and that, that's certainly one of the big factors over the history of, of English is that, you know, one of the, the, the largest um, reasons for the change in English um, historically was the introduction of printing, as a concept, because with that came the possibility of standardization. Before that, English was much more divergent, and there was no single standard form. And what we're seeing now, of course, is another similarly radical change in the introduction of a new technology form, which is changing English. And one of the things I say in my article um, is that, you know, when in the past we thought of standard English as having uh, having hold over the language, now, of course, on the internet we've got much more divergence, and we're almost going back to uh, the pre. Um, standardized form of English. Um, But of course, another major change that might well have an impact on English as a world language is the possibility of automatically translating from one language to another, simply replacing the need for any lingua franca at all. Um, And so, you know, this is another factor to bring in. We can look back at the history of all lingua francas and see that as the, you know, the British Empire spread English, and now the British Empire is no more and it's receding. But of course, there's still many millions of um, English speakers across the world. But do people, the, the biggest area of growth for English is in countries like India, where there's a huge population and English is predominantly spoken as a second language. Um, that's the growth area for English. It's not more native speakers, it's more second language speakers. And they're learning it because it's an important way of getting on in business and so on. But if you can just simply enter something into a computer and get the, um, the translated equivalent, then do you need to learn English? Do you need to learn any form of lingua franca, or can we just all communicate electronically? I want to talk about the emojis. Uh, I don't know, are you associated in any way with Oxford Dictionaries? Well, they did actually give me, I was lucky enough to know in advance what the word of the year is going to be. Okay. They asked me to write a, a piece um, to go with the announcement, so I, I am in that sense, yeah. But you you didn't get a vote on it or whatever, you know. Uh, I didn't get any say in it at all. No, <laughs> I did think it was. You're a not good responsible choice, for it. Uh, it's, it's it's a very interesting choice. It's it's not only emoji, uh, and I think people for older people, uh, you see these little uh, pictograms, these little faces, and it's a specific emoji that they chose for the uh, 2015 Word of the Year. It's uh, let's let, let me go to this. It is. Uh, face with tears of joy is what they chose. That's right, yeah. And um, the reason for that in particular is that seems to be the one 
that has increased in its usage so um, uh, to to the greatest extent in 2015. Um, and um, what I think is interesting about this is that emoji is again I've been talking about how the the new digital form of language is changing the English that we use. And of course, one one way in this is that that um, the digital language is is a kind of cross between spoken English and written English. It's written in the sense that we're obviously writing it, but it's much more informal than normal written published prose. And also, it's done quite often in real time when you send off a text or an email. It's to a known person. And quite often you want to, um, it's more like a conversation than it is like a formal um, piece of writing. And in a conversation, of course, we typically use things like um, hand gestures and intonation and facial expressions to try and give a sense of to add extra forms of communication to the message. They convey those kinds of meanings in a face-to-face -face interaction. Um, and so, of course, what's developed in email and texting and um, other forms of online um, communication are ways of trying to include that non-linguistic uh, information. So emoticons, of course, came in in the, in the 1980s. Uh, but they were rather crude. You know, those are the forms of sort of where you use keyboard strokes like the colon and the bracket to give a smiley face on, on its side. They didn't allow you to express a very wide range of emotion. And what's happened now, of course, is that the emoji has come along um, to, in, to replace that sort of comparative crudity and allowing us to express a far greater range of expressions. I wonder, uh, I want to get your take on this. Um, Sort of the conventional wisdom, you, you talk to a lot of people um, who are speculating that uh, you fast forward 100 years, and it's going to be Chinese. That's the lingua, lingua franca. The lingua franca. Uh, is, what do you think? It's certainly possible. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that people have often res responded to me about that article is surely it's going to be Mandarin anyway. You know, again, if we look back at history, then quite often what we do see is that languages, and we've mentioned French, and of course Arabic is another example of languages that at one stage, Greek is another good example of a language that, you know, was, was so um, uh, widely spoken um, back in sort of New Testament times, and now is only spoken in a very small area of Europe. So we can see historically that, you know, there's no reason why everyone should always be speaking English. It's got a huge population. Uh, it'll be, it, it depends on the extent to which China um, becomes, a, you know, a, a really established world power to the extent that everybody wants to, to, to do business with them and therefore needs to learn to speak their language. Of course, the one thing that, that English has on its side is, is the fact that Americans speak it, and by far the largest proportion of um, speakers of English now has not, nothing to do with Britain, of course, but it's to do with the, 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 the importance of America and American English. Um, and so I think, you know, at the moment I'd say uh, that, that English still has sway because of the fact that it's, it's so predominant on the world stage. Um, but, of course, we don't know what's going to happen with China. We have an email that's just come in. I want to fit this in. Um, this is from Laura McGregor, who says, I'm surprised no one has brought up the connection between today's discussion and Eliza Doolittle and Henry Higgins. And she does an emoticon, the little smiley face. My uh, comment is not only related to the pronunciation of words, but also the grammar that's prevalent these days. Twenty years ago, when our family was preparing to return to the lower 48 after spending seven years in Anchorage, Alaska, I placed a phone call to a human resource uh, employee of a local hospital as part of a job search. My ears were ringing, no pun intended, as I hung up 
up the receiver, and I was trying to decide exactly what language had been spoken on the other end of the line, as it sounded nothing like the English I'd been raised with. My eldest child was five years old and starting kindergarten on our return. I was called in after the first week and asked to discipline her for, quote, continually correcting the teacher, end quote. Upon questioning her, I found that she had been pointing out to her teacher that she should not be saying, we seen yesterday, and that the proper way to say it was, we saw yesterday, and other such phrases. I remember well the day when I was dismayed to find those types of grammar mishaps no longer, uh, they no longer hurt my ears and sometimes didn't even notice. Enjoy your program. Thank you. That's uh, Laura McGregor. Uh, so we just have about a minute left to Professor Harbin. This, uh, yeah, but I guess the key point here is language changes, and we may we may rail against it. It's a hab- hobby of mine, but it's going to change. I think that's right. And it's interesting how it's so often that things that we grow up with, that our parents, our teachers drum into us, that become things that in later life we we feel very passionately about ourselves. Those things that. that early on stay with us um, and then when we hear people going you know we've been taught we've been forced to learn these rules and later on when we hear people misusing them then we want to put them right we want to correct them those those rules will go on um, and throughout the rest of our lives we'll feel that those standards must be observed we've been talking with simon horbin professor of english language and literature university of oxford in england His recent article will have a link to that on our website. It's in theconversation.com, titled, What Will the English Language Be Like in 100 Years? Professor Horbin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi, this is Robert Siegel of NPR's All Things Considered, your evening news destination. You know, events unfold throughout the day between Morning Edition and All Things Considered. So tune in for Here and Now with Jeremy Hobson and Robin Young. It's in-depth news, analysis, and extraordinary stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Join us weekday mornings at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 